Greetings, Detective. Welcome to the Murder Mystery Company in our new free service, Calm Mystery. We know that many of you need that calm and centered moment, but meditation isn't necessarily your thing. If you're a mystery lover, a crime fan, and could use a break, you've come to the right place. It sure is a suspenseful world out there, but I have good news for you. In this world, the only suspense will come from the world's best writers. For the next few minutes, we're going to close the door on the outside world. First, find a comfortable chair, sofa, or bed. Take a moment to just relax into that spot. Let your body sink in, slowly releasing the day's tension. Just relax. You've earned this time. You need this time for you. Your body will thank you. Now let's take a moment to clear your mind. I want you to focus on two things. My voice and your breathing. Take a deep breath in through your nose. Let it out slowly through your mouth. Now the same thing, but let's breathe on my count. Three counts in and four counts out. Breathe in one, two, three. Now out one, two, three, four. As we do this, you're going to slowly relax more and be perfectly ready for tonight's dastardly tale. Now again, breathe in. One, two, three. Now out. One, two, three, four. One more time, breathing out the last bit of stress. Breathe in, one, two, three. Now out, one, two, three, four. Excellent. Tonight's tale of mystery, intrigue, and murder is truly spine-tingling. Welcome to Calm Mystery. This installment, The Problem of Cell 13 by Jacques Futrell, read by Perry F. Bruns. Chapter 1 Practically all those letters remaining in the alphabet after Augustus S. F. X. Van Dusen was named were afterward acquired by that gentleman in the course of a brilliant scientific career, and, being honorably acquired, or tacked on to the other end. His name, therefore, taken with all that belonged to it, was a wonderfully imposing structure. He was a Ph.D., an LLD, an FRS, an MD, and an MDS. He was also some other things, just what he himself couldn't say, 
through recognition of his ability by various foreign educational and scientific institutions. In appearance, he was no less striking than in nomenclature. He was slender with the droop of the student in his thin shoulders and the pallor of a close, sedentary life on his clean-shaven face. His eyes wore a perpetual, forbidding squint, the squint of a man who studies little things, and when they could be seen at all through his thick spectacles, were mere slits of watery blue. But above his eyes was his most striking feature. This was a tall, broad brow, almost abnormal in height and width, crowned by a heavy shock of bushy yellow hair. All these things conspired to give him a peculiar, almost grotesque, personality. Professor Van Dusen was remotely German. For generations his ancestors had been noted in the sciences. He was the logical result, the master mind. First, and above all, he was a logician. At least thirty-five years of the half-century or so of his existence had been devoted exclusively to proving that two and two always equal four, except in unusual cases where they equal three or five, as the case may be. He stood broadly on the general proposition that all things that start must go somewhere, and was able to bring the concentrated mental force of his forefathers to bear on a given problem. Incidentally, it may be remarked that Professor Van Dusen wore a number eight hat. The world at large had heard vaguely of Professor Van Dusen as the thinking machine. It was a newspaper catchphrase applied to him, at the time of a remarkable exhibition at chess, he had demonstrated then that a stranger to the game might, by the force of inevitable logic, defeat a champion who had devoted a lifetime to its study. The Thinking Machine. Perhaps that more nearly described him than all his honorary initials, for he spent week after week, month after month, in the seclusion of his small laboratory, from which had gone forth thoughts that staggered scientific associates and deeply stirred the world at large. It was only occasionally that the thinking machine had visitors, and these were usually men who, themselves high in the sciences, dropped in to argue a point and perhaps convince themselves. Two of these men, Dr. Charles Ransom and Alfred Fielding, called one evening to discuss some theory which is not of consequence here. "'Such a thing is impossible,' declared Dr. Ransom emphatically in the course of the conversation. "'Nothing is impossible,' declared the thinking machine with equal emphasis. He always spoke petulantly. "'The mind is master of all things,' When science fully recognizes that fact, a great advance will have been made. How about the airship? asked Dr. Ransom. That's not impossible at all, 
asserted the thinking machine. It will be invented sometime. I'd do it myself, but I'm busy. Dr. Ransom laughed tolerantly. I've heard you say such things before, he said, but they mean nothing. Mind may be master of matter, but it hasn't yet found a way to apply itself. There are some things that can't be thought out of existence, or rather which would not yield to any amount of thinking. What, for instance? demanded the thinking machine. Dr. Ransom was thoughtful for a moment as he smoked. Well, say, prison walls, he replied. No man can think himself out of a cell. If he could, there would be no prisoners. A man can so apply his brain and ingenuity that he can leave a cell which is the same thing, snapped the thinking machine. Dr. Ransom was slightly amused. Let's suppose a case, he said after a moment. Take a cell where prisoners under sentence of death are confined. Men who are desperate and maddened by fear would take any chance to escape. Suppose you were locked in such a cell. <laughs> Could you escape? Certainly, declared the thinking machine. Of course said Mr. Fielding, who entered the conversation for the first time. You might wreck the cell with an explosive, but inside, a prisoner, you couldn't have that. There would be nothing of that kind, said the thinking machine. You might treat me precisely as you treated prisoners under sentence of death, and I would leave the cell. Not unless you entered it with tools prepared to get out, said Dr. Ransom. The thinking machine was visibly annoyed, and his blue eyes snapped. Lock me in any cell, in any prison, anywhere, at any time, wearing only what is necessary, and I'll escape in a week, he declared sharply. Dr. Ransom sat up straight in the chair, interested. Mr. Fielding lighted a new cigar. "'You mean you could actually think yourself out?' asked Dr. Ransom. "'I would get out,' was the response. "'Are you serious?' "'Certainly I am serious.' Dr. Ransom and Mr. Fielding were silent for a long time. "'Would you be willing to try it?' asked Mr. Fielding, finally. Certainly, said Professor Van Dusen, and there was a trace of irony in his voice. I have done more asinine things than that to convince other men of less important truths. The tone was offensive, and there was an undercurrent strongly resembling anger on both sides. Of course, it was an absurd thing, but Professor Van Dusen reiterated his willingness to undertake the escape and it was decided upon. To begin now, added Dr. Ransom. I'd prefer that it begin tomorrow, said the thinking machine, because... No, now, said Mr. Fielding, flatly. You are arrested, figuratively, of course, 
without any warning, locked in a cell with no chance to communicate with friends, and left there with identically the same care and attention that would be given to a man under sentence of death. Are you willing? All right, now then, said the thinking machine, and he arose. Say, the death cell in Chisholm Prison. The death cell in Chisholm Prison. And what will you wear? As little as possible, said the thinking machine. Shoes, stockings, trousers, and a shirt. You will permit yourself to be searched, of course. I am to be treated precisely as all prisoners are treated, said the thinking machine. No more attention and no less. There were some preliminaries to be arranged in the matter of obtaining permission for the test. But all three were influential men, and everything was done satisfactorily by telephone, albeit the prison commissioners, to whom the experiment was explained on purely scientific grounds, were sadly bewildered. Professor Van Dusen would be the most distinguished prisoner they had ever entertained. When the thinking machine had donned those things which he was to wear during his incarceration, he called the little old woman, who was his housekeeper, cook, and maidservant, all in one. "'Martha,' he said, "'it is now twenty-seven minutes past nine o'clock. I am going away. One week from tonight, at half-past nine, these gentlemen, and one, possibly two others, will take supper with me here. Remember, Dr. Ransom is very fond of artichokes.' The three men were driven to Chisholm Prison, where the warden was awaiting them having been informed of the matter by telephone. He understood merely that the eminent Professor Van Dusen was to be his prisoner, if he could keep him, for one week. That he had committed no crime, but that he was to be treated as all other prisoners were treated. "'Search him,' instructed Dr. Ransom. The thinking machine was searched. Nothing was found on him. The pockets of the trousers were empty. The white, stiff-bosomed shirt had no pocket. The shoes and stockings were removed, examined, then replaced. As he watched all these preliminaries, the rigid search and noted the pitiful, childlike physical weakness of the man, the colorless face, and the thin white hands, Dr. Ransom almost regretted his part in the affair. "'Are you sure you want to do this?' he asked. "'Would you be convinced if I did not?' inquired the thinking machine in turn. "'No.' "'All right, I'll do it.' What sympathy Dr. Ransom had was dissipated by the tone. It nettled him, and he resolved to see the experiment to the end. It would be a stinging reproof to egotism. It will be impossible for him to communicate with anyone outside, he asked. Absolutely impossible, replied the warden. He will not be permitted writing materials of any sort. And your jailers, would they deliver a message from him? 
Not one word, directly or indirectly, said the warden. You may rest assured of that. They will report anything he might say or turn over to me anything he might give them. That seems entirely satisfactory, said Mr. Fielding, who was frankly interested in the problem. Of course, in the event he fails, said Dr. Ransom, and asks for his liberty, you understand you are to set him free. I understand, replied the warden. The thinking machine stood listening, but had nothing to say until this was all ended. Then, I should like to make three small requests. You may grant them or not, as you wish. No special favors now, warned Mr. Fielding. I am asking none. I would like to have some tooth powder. Buy it yourself to see that it is tooth powder. And I should like to have one five-dollar and two ten-dollar bills. Dr. Ransom, Mr. Fielding, and the warden exchanged astonished glances. They were not surprised at the request for tooth powder, but were at the request for money. Is there any man with whom our friend would come in contact that he could bribe with twenty-five dollars? asked Dr. Ransom of the warden. Not for twenty-five hundred dollars, was the positive reply. Well, let him have them, said Mr. Fielding. I think they are harmless enough. And what is the third request? asked Dr. Ransom. I should like to have my shoes polished. Again, the astonished glances were exchanged. This last request was the height of absurdity. So they agreed to it. These things all being attended to, the thinking machine was led back into the prison from which he had undertaken to escape. Here is cell 13, said the warden, stopping three doors down the steel corridor. This is where we keep condemned murderers. No one can leave it without my permission, and no one in it can communicate with the outside. I'll stake my reputation on that. It's only three doors back of my office, and I can readily hear any unusual noise. Will this cell do, gentlemen? asked the thinking machine. There was a touch of irony in his voice. Admirably, was the reply. The heavy steel door was thrown open. There was a great scurrying and scampering of tiny feet, and the thinking machine passed into the gloom of the cell. Then the door was closed and double-locked by the warden. What is that noise in there? asked Dr. Ransom through the bars. Rats. Dozens of them, replied the thinking machine, tersely. The three men, with final good nights, were turning away when the thinking machine called. What time is it exactly, warden? Eleven seventeen, replied the warden. Thanks. I will join you gentlemen in your office at half past eight o'clock one week from tonight, said the thinking machine. And if you do not? There is no if about it. That's the end of chapter one 
of The Problem of Cell 13 by Jacques Futrell. The Problem of Cell 13 is one of two novels about Professor Van Dusen written by Futrell before a very significant date in history. April 15th, 1912. The morning RMS Titanic sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, taking with it more than 1,500 people, including Jacques Futrell, after he made sure his wife made it aboard one of the lifeboats. Futrell displays a particular vision for striking characters and tense situations, so we hope you'll stay with us all the way to the end of this classic escape story. But perhaps I've said too much. Anyway, join us next time on Calm Mystery. Thank you for listening to Calm Mystery, a Murder Mystery Company production. To solve your own case with us, visit MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, and use code CALM, C-A-L-M, for $20 off your own murder mystery party. We have dozens of entertaining detectives. You can even ask for me, Perry, by name. If no one else can help, and if they can find me, Maybe I can help you become Detective of the Night. That's MurderMysteryZoomParty.com, all one word, code CALM.